Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. A wise man once said, summer, summer, summer time, time to sit back and unwind. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you know this? Uh, you do you know this? So. His man was uh, Fresh Prince. That man did not have children. He was uh, he was with his friend Jazzy Jeff. Yeah. And they were, you know, I guess what checking out, uh, riding oh, around ladies. in your Jeep or your Benzos exactly. or in your Nissan, sitting on Lorenzos. Yeah. We usually don't record in the summer. How? What's the what's the July vibes like? I can't imagine what it's like in Houston, but um, I want to hear hear from you. I don't know. It's weird. So we're never really around in July anyway. That's when we try to leave town. And so it's like a lot of like, we're, you know, we're home when we're not usually home. Um, weirdly, I mean, I, I think we all feel bad now when we are having a good day, which is so dark. Um, but uh, we've had a bunch of parishioners with swimming pools. So this is a PSA. If you are like... Um, you know, if you've got adult children and no one's using that pool in your backyard, you know some young people with little kids. Give them a call. Tell them to come over. Oh. So uh, today we went over to a sweet parishioner's house, St. Betty, and uh, we got there and she had made lunch oh and like just put it out for us. And she was like, sometimes moms need a break, too. And I almost started crying. So um, I totally feel you on this. We've we've gone to so like, many like random pools now that my kids have started like grading them, and I have to say like, guys, <laughs> you cannot compare them in front of the people who are who totally, yeah, like this is too yeah. small. There's no diving board. Yeah, yeah, and let's compare that to the inflatable one in your backyard that that keeps somehow ending up on dog poop. So take it down a notch. Yeah, no, we're we're doing a lot of that too. It's funny. Oh, it's a, it's actually really kind of amazing to see how people offer up things, and and you know during this yeah. period. It's like my wife's like you're such a freeloader. I was like, well, they they offered, and and yes. we really this is a real this is a tangible help. If you know that for two hours they're gonna swim and move their little bodies, then guess what? That equals four hours of screen time when you get home. <laughs> no comment. No comment. That's Corona math. The Sarah Condon economy right there on yeah, full display. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, Rutger, you science. Haven't, you haven't had anything going on. Nothing at all. We we do have a pool, which is amazing. And at we your were, house? Yeah. yeah I'm going to spit my do. iced coffee. At, the, <laughs> okay. at the, the rectory has a pool? The rectory has a pool. And it's like an old pool, too, because it actually has a deep end. Like it was clearly mm. dug out before the age of liability. That's awesome. Um, and uh, I, um, I will say, the roof is just close enough that you can definitely jump off the roof into the pool. Not that anyone in my family has done that or would ever oh consider gosh. doing that. But it is technically feasible. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, the pool is good. Um, but st- <laughs> the pool is great. Moving is still terrible. <laughs> Newsflash, yeah. moving is still terrible. So we're just getting yeah. settled in, unpacking boxes. and. Uh, Did y'all buy some paper plates? 
Uh, <laughs> Come on, we RJ. Not, we did I'm not. Send, I'm going to send you a, a very, big ass box of paper plates. You better buckle up. Very effective uh, dishwasher. And I, I love the earth. So, uh, no, no. We, we're, we're, we're hanging in. We're, we're, we're gradually getting settled. We, As far as we know, all of our kids will be starting school in late August, which we are very much looking forward to. Sure. But uh, things in Florida are pretty bananas at the same time with this whole, yeah. as, as they are in Texas, you know. So. No, but they're, cr- I mean, y'all are making us look good. So thank you. I know. What did my son said? There was a meme recently. There, he's like, he's like, the United States is now the Florida of the world. You know? <laughs> I was like, that's uh, that's pretty harsh in a lot of ways. Yeah. But but anyway, there you go. Well, I'm uh, glad that uh, I'm not in either of those states, to be honest with you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, I saw y'all did farm church. We did. We had our first outdoor service that's at, so at, cool. a, at a someone in the church has a farm with this big space, and um, you know it it worked. The powerful thing was just being together and. Yeah. Um, it was it was a fraction of the people that would normally come, but just the very act of doing it felt like a, a step in a um, in a, in the right direction, Good. and um, is is amazing because I thought oh it's going to be powerful to say prayers together or to hear a sermon together or to hear someone sing, but the truth is what was powerful was just just the physical yeah. presence of being with that's what people. everyone misses the yeah. most is just yeah. being together. It's speaking of the deep end, we're going to jump into it by talking yeah. about a subject that did get us in trouble beforehand. Ooh. And it was a little Mostly surprising. Sarah. It's got me. Sarah in trouble. You know what? <laughs> definitely did get Sarah. In S- trouble Sarah too. has no, no, no trouble getting herself in and trouble. Sarah though, so. didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, this was news to me and I was late to it, but Rachel Hollis, the writer and sort of life coach, self-help guru, social media personality, brand, what have you. She's been a major force in uh, the lives of uh, especially sort of middle-class American women, it sounds like, for the last you know, year or so. And there's a rash of articles coming out um, about a year ago or so, to, uh, taking her to task for some of the things that she was actually saying. Anyway, a couple weeks ago, she announced um, that she and her husband of nearly 20 years are getting a divorce. Now, let me just give one more qualification. Uh, the point here is not to comment on any um, or to profit off of anyone's pain. Uh, this is clearly uh, an uh, unfortunate um, thing. And yet, what, what, what we're interested in or what I'm interested in is less about the specific people involved and more about the cultural phenomenon that seems it seems to embody. So we're going to read a little bit from uh, an article that appeared on Medium called Girl, You've Been Made by Shannon Ashley. For a woman who's based her entire brand on telling it like it is, it looks like Rachel's only been telling you what she thinks you need to hear. But this recent revelation suggests that the slightly sloppy yet miraculously put together Hollis hasn't been as honest or vulnerable as she's claimed. After all, wouldn't her fans have had some sort of inkling that the power couple was deeply struggling? Mm. This whole story reeks of curated authenticity and is reminiscent of another uh, sort of Instagram influencer named Micah Stauffer who recently gave away her adopted son. Horrible. Granted, husbands are much easier and far less controversial to leave than a child, but much like uh, Hollis, uh, both women made a name for themselves for supposedly being vulnerable and authentic. And so when they reveal something so significant in their lives that shocks virtually their entire fan base, something about that tastes pretty fishy. 
like the discovery that maybe these women aren't so real after all. Rachel routinely talks about other women not living up to their potential. She wants everyone to know that if they're not happy, it's on them to fix it. While I am all for taking personal responsibility and cultivating an internal locus of control, I see Rachel's reasoning as something more extreme and a lot more dangerous. A lot like a lot of her advice reads like that out-of-touch friend who's never seen a day of real adversity herself. In fact, much of her advice is inappropriate for women suffering from depression or other mental health issues, for example. But the reasoning goes that if a person doesn't reach their goal, well, then they didn't try hard enough. They didn't want it bad enough. Well, then what about this divorce? How can someone like Rachel tell the world that she's worked endlessly on her marriage when she's already said repeatedly that if you really want something, you'll make it work? Perhaps what success actually looks like is messy and tinged with various failures along the way. Maybe we want success to be some beautiful endgame, but it's really just one complex piece of the journey. So let's be honest, even though she hasn't been honest with us. People love the hype and the fairy tale. I can hard, oh, not, to, so hard not to assassinate this person because I'm sure uh, this is not uh, what anyone dreams of happening to them. But Well, no. And I, I mean, I, you know, as someone who has had a very small amount of influence on social media, but has had some, I mean, I have to keep myself in check, right? Because with some of these women, yes, I, um, it's very easy for me to take what other people say about women like Rachel, that's negative and to really kind of revel in it because they've been so successful. Um, so I want to be really mindful of that. That's why I said it out loud, but I think, I, you know, Dave, I texted you or, or emailed you about this specifically because it really hit something kind of something I've been working on this summer, which is like I've been off of social media in a profound way. Um, I've always wanted to get off of social media, like uh, not entirely, but to be less um, attached to it. And, you know, by God's grace or just this, I just don't have the bandwidth, anxiety meds. I have no idea. I'm just on it less. And that has been really miraculous for me. Um, And so when this happened and I was aware of it on social media, I kind of took a few more steps. I felt more removed from it, which was helpful. Um, because first, I like I feel deep compassion for this woman. Um, and I also wonder about this place we have created where people honestly think that the people that they're looking at are being vulnerable mm. and where the people who think they're being vulnerable honestly think they're being vulnerable. Which is deeply uh, untrue um, and tragic because whenever somebody's like really vulnerable on the internet, like somebody gets on and they're like, um, you know, they talk about their kid having like a mental health diagnosis or something. <laughs> There's always like a or or you know, I've seen people like, I mean, even more seriously, I've seen people talk about suicide ideation right on social media before their own and and and. We see when people are truly vulnerable, when people are like, here's what's happening in the depths of my dark soul, it's really jarring. Like, everyone's like, are you okay? We need to call somebody. This isn't good. So what we want from people, and her divorce, frankly, probably hits hits that note for a lot of people who really believe in her, is like, I can't believe she's like, this is too much, right? Like, mm-hmm. we believed she was this person, and now she's that person. 
And I just think there's, you know, I feel like I've said this on the podcast before, but I think social media is really new. We're in the 1920s of cigarettes right now. Everybody has a light cough, right? And no one is looking at the ramifications of this. And I think there are real ramifications for the fact that we, I don't know, it's kind of gross too, right? Like we're dependent on someone to be vulnerable, which is a little like Mm. to validate something in us. Like it's all kind of gross. I don't know. I, I really, I feel for Rachel. I mean, she's done some annoying stuff, but honestly I've low key loved when she does annoying stuff because then everyone hates on her, which just feeds like a really bad part of me. And so mm. maybe I'm unqualified to talk about that. <laughs> That's RJ. Options. Yeah. <laughs> What's made me wonder about is whether it actually is possible to be transparent and be a Christian voice, Ooh, a Christian leader. A you know, like question. when I when I think about the people who I feel like are actually really honest about themselves, you know, one person who comes to mind is Tim Kreider. I feel like he's, he's maybe it's all a farce, but I feel like he's pretty upfront about who he is and tells the truth about himself. Not a Christian, not professor. He's, he's a humor essayist, but he really tells the truth in a profound way. You know, and, and Anne Lamott has a little bit of that too. That it, and so does... Mary Carr, you know, who are Christians and who have kind of laid it bare, but they're not leaders necessarily, they're authors, right? And I think, like, I'm in a position of quote-unquote Christian leadership, and I'd like to think that some level of vulnerability and truth-telling is part of my ministry, because I do think Jesus calls us to live in the light. And yet, you know, Sarah, you and I can say this, like our, our primary job, is it's not to talk about ourselves, it's to talk about Jesus, and yet you can't really talk about Jesus without talking about yourself, you know, come and meet this man who told me everything I ever knew. Yeah. And then I think about the Bible, and I think about the excruciating degree to which biblical leaders are laid bare, mm. everything they've done, you know, that Paul is a murderer, and David is a murderer and philanderer, and <laughs> Peter denies Jesus three times and opposes Paul to his face. And um, I don't know. It's, it's just it's just a funny thing, right? I mean, you know, Dave, your dad has said before, and he's right, like, you, you never bleed in the pulpit, right? Because then you're drawing attention to yourself and not to Jesus. Um, and yet I feel like what led to some degree to her downfall is what you said, Sarah. People don't, they don't want to hear the truth because it's not pretty. Mm-hmm. People don't want, people don't want to face the truth about themselves. And so they don't want to face the truth about somebody else who's not themselves. And, um, you know, like Dave, I remember your dad saying at some point when he was in pastoral ministry, um, people saying to him, and maybe younger people specifically, like, Paul, does it always have to be like, does it have to be so dark all the time? Like, does it have to be so dark? And Paul and your dad being like, well, yes, perhaps it is dark, but perhaps it's also the truth. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe maybe those two things are not incompatible. And Mm -hmm. so it just makes me think about Christian leadership and transparency and truth telling, but not too much truth telling and, and, and trying to usher people into a space of repentance of truth telling in a helpful way that that leads them to grace and redemption and um but also you know that doesn't allow them to just ignore 
their own problems because you're ignoring your problems. It, it's, it's just, it's a strange thing. It's a strange thing. No, so it's, that's where it's, my mind it's went. It's more than a strange thing. I think it's a tragic thing because uh, uh, what you have here is that, you know, for years now, um, uh, vulnerability and authenticity have been two kind of cultural virtues that we've agreed upon are good. And the second time those things became positive goods, that you would be, uh, you'd receive some social reward for being vulnerable or being authentic, was the second, because it, it uh, by the way, I think vulnerability and authenticity are good things. Like, they're, they're wonderful things. But the second you uphold them as, as basically the law of who you must be in order to be loved... Well, then you open the door for people to game the system. And I, don't, I think, Sarah, one thing you said really struck me in that I'm not cynical enough to say that she was trying to uh, be completely calculated in this. Like, I think it was right. hidden to, to herself. And it, it, so many of us, this, this curated authenticity is not authenticity at all. That's what needs to be said. Curated vulnerability is not vulnerability at all. So you can be vulnerable up to a point, but no further. And the people that are really successful at it know exactly where that point is. Yeah. And this is off the other side of it. And yeah. so, and, and you know, if you talk to them, they would say that they feel so much pressure to, to present a certain version of themselves. Absolutely. That they were going crazy. Yeah. And uh, that is, I think, true. It's, it's true. And, uh, but of course, if you're trying to, especially if you're trying to be a, any kind of leader in, in, Christ, in Christian or spiritual uh, circles, well, then you're cutting off really much of the interaction with God if you're cutting off the, the true vulnerability, which is not calculated and is not done in order to give a response. There's, there is shame and there is guilt involved in it. And there's not just... I, I, I have a messy house, but I still love my kids kind of stuff. Because right now we're also living through a time of a lot of public apologies, and they're starting to take on a form, and they're starting to become a genre almost, and that you got to hit the right notes. And oh, yeah. it doesn't mean that some of the people aren't sincere, but yeah. the second it becomes a vehicle of self-justification, it, it just the forces are too strong. And it's like, it's like an undertow, and you get swept under it. And uh, God kind of leaves the picture because there's so much self-deception and justification going on yeah i i totally agree i mean i i was there was a parody of celebrities kind of in this moment right now doing instagram videos that was so funny i saw uh the other day and it was this guy and he's just like hey guys everyone's in a chaotic moment right now and i just feel like it's time for some silence and for the people who know about the issues to talk about the issues. And I want to offer space. Like it was just like, Oh my God, this is every video we've seen every person do. And I am finding myself in this. So I want to own that. Like when we are in this curated Instagrammable kids, cute moment, and it's hitting up against what our country is going through. Um, both the, the, racial inequalities that people are now seeing but also a pandemic right like what is god doing first of all like let's have that conversation what is god doing right now but when those two things hit up against each other it's like you think there's such a chasm i don't know right like between and it's another reason why social media i'm just like i can't do it because it just feels like such a chasm between what would this image we're trying to project of our lives and and i don't want to just say like what other people are going through hell like what i'm going through like it's just like all feels very um it just 
feels like it's not helping. I guess that's the only way I can put it. And I and I feel for Rachel. I I do I feel for her. I, but I I'll be honest. I also feel for all these women who have followed her, mm. who have gotten in fights with their husband because they're not quote unquote romantic enough, right? Or who like don't like their kids as much as Rachel seems to like hers because she takes all this time to like I don't know cook organic food or whatever. Like I also am sad for those women because this is you know this really is investing in a person and not investing in a promise. Mm. And that's the difference between, you know, when we preach ourselves and when we preach Christ crucified. And unfortunately we're seeing like laid bare what the, the, the rotten fruit of that is. And, and let me just say preaching Christ crucified means preaching people who need him to be crucified for them. And the problem yeah. here is that we've got these dual virtues or these dual beliefs that authenticity and, and uh, uh, transparency is a good thing, but that people are also good. You know, yes, you need to be authentic RJ, and transparent yes. and good, but then you need to be good at the same time. It's like, well, yes. that's just not going to work. I'm no. sorry. Like, there's that's, that's an inedible not, sandwich, people. It's not true. It <laughs> yeah. can't happen, you know? And so yeah. the, preaching Christ crucified means acknowledging that I need him and you need him to be crucified for you because you are not good and I yeah. am not good. Um, yeah. No, that's one of the things I was uh, reviewing uh, uh, the, Tara Isabella Burton's new book, Strange Rights, this week. And one of the things she locates lurking behind a lot of sort of modern religiosity and seculosity, for, for lack of a better word, is uh, this lionization or valorization of authenticity on its own. Because what mm-hmm. it really means is that if you can just be authentic to yourself, you can essentially perfect yourself. There's a perfectibility of the human creature. Now, Christians don't believe people are perfectible, which allows someone to therefore be authentic and vulnerable. But mm-hmm. if the authenticity is trying to ever striving after the pitch perfect, completely unfettered expression of this authentic self, which as many people say, doesn't really even exist because we, right. we're constantly, uh, you know, searching after it and it, it sort of fades and changes all the time. But that there's a perfectibility underneath this injunction to be authentic or to be vulnerable that that is that is so if you're not being authentic enough or not being vulnerable enough or if you're um if 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 there's some toxic friend in your life who's preventing you from expressing something that you feel like is authentic well then it's their fault and or and it's or, or it's really your fault for not uh getting that person out of your life and burton's book which is fabulous but also <laughs> quite depressing um I gotta say, my children are that. really impeding my ability to be my, my authentic self. I'm done. I'm out. That's it. Now? I'm sorry. Bye bye. Okay. <laughs> I could do so much more if it was just me. So sorry. Continue, Dave. I'm just, no, you said that. It's like, yeah, it's like everyone in my life, including me, <laughs> yeah, keeps exactly. me from being what I would like to be. So, well, um, it, it, it contradicts the truth of the matter is that we're actually usually happier to the extent that we're invested in other people, not in ourselves. That's right. That's right. So true. And, and, and as it, if we have any idea what our authentic self is, like, give me a break. Like, yes. like, like, good luck figuring what it out. What is our authentic self? What does that even like, mean? It's different at Let 10 a.m. Let me know when you find it. it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I know. You just sort of want to fall on your knees and say, Lord, deliver me. But um, yes. what, what yes. other option do you deliver have? Deliver me from my authentic self. <laughs>
I know it's it's also the last days of disco. All that's always goes through it my is, mind. Totally. It's like he yeah. says, that, you know that Shakespearean admonition to thine own self be true. Well, well, what if thine own self isn't all that great? Like that's kind of my that's my problem. Uh, what if in fact it's it's kind of terrible? Like well, see that's what I'm dealing with right now. And the guy's like, huh? Yeah, I, I could see how that would be tough. And uh, it's for uh, you. I can see how that would be tough for you. For you, not for me, because I'm not authentically uh, better than you are. Well, let's move from uh, a Rachel Hollis, and I do hope she finds some healing and some in, in the middle of the breakdown. And yeah. the I also really hope for her own sake that she goes dark for a little while. Me let's too. hope we, I was just let's hope we don't day. hear anything from yeah. her for yeah. like two years. Yeah, you know, yeah, and then maybe yeah. she'll have something to say. Because it's when yeah. when, when the, your public voice is your only idiom for even making sense of yourself to yourself. Yeah. Then uh, we've all watched in the Christian world as that has not gone well. And you want people, you don't, not everything has to be processed out loud. I just also want to say, Rachel, girl, if you're listening, this is not the moment to explore international adoption. So (laughs) that's often the next move in this circumstance. And I just want to say, don't do it. Just go and read some books about the Enneagram and and get some exercise. Do that. that. Leave kids alone. Okay, go on. Uh, Well, we are living in a moment that is just overflowing with shame. And we've talked about this mainly in terms of how, you know, people are shaming each other for mask wearing or not wearing masks or for how their children are interacting with these people. And it's a, one of the moments, things that complicates the awkward half reopening, half completely falling apart uh, month of July in America is that no one really... Um, knows what to do. And so we're all individually responding by, by, uh, by the, the judgments are increasing rather than decreasing. Uh, now, this is the subject of two different articles on the Atlantic this week. The first one is by Zainab Tufeki. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, and the uh, title is Scolding Beachgoers Isn't Helping. Our national pandemic conversation, like almost everything else, has turned into a polarized, contentious tug of war in which evidence sometimes matters less than what team someone is on. And in a particularly American fashion, we've turned a public health catastrophe into a fight among factions in which the virus is treated as a moral agent that will disproportionately smite one's ideological enemies while presumably sparing the moral and the righteous, rather than as a pathogen that spreads more effectively in some settings or through some behaviors which are impervious to moral or ideological hierarchy. Add in our broken digital public sphere, which we've just been talking about, where anger and outrage more easily bring in the retweets, likes, and clicks, and we have the makings of the confused, harmful, and counterproductive environment we find ourselves in now. And this, the jumping off point for this article is the spate of sort of outrage over pictures of people on the beach during the reopening. Uh, this Harvard epidemiologist Julia Marcus told me, you'd think from the moral outrage about these beach photos that fun in itself transmits the virus. <laughs> but when people find lower risk ways to enjoy their lives, that's actually a public health win. The beach shaming is especially terrible because so many months in, we now know that the virus spreads most readily indoors, especially in unventilated, crowded space, and even more so in such spaces where people are talking or singing without masks. In other words, one can hardly imagine a comparatively safer environment than a sunny, windy ocean beach. The beach may, be, may well be as good as it gets, R.J. Heyman, if people stay socially distant, which is much easier to do on a big beach. When we scold, people stop listening. 
especially when they figure out that the scolding isn't evidence-based, and they eventually will. When authorities close parks and beaches without strong scientific evidence, socializing may well move out of sight to more dangerous settings indoors. Um, we're going to pause there. I want to hear from you uh, because this is a. Uh, uh, I'm about to be uh, away at a, at a at a beach at an undisclosed beach location for uh, a week or so, and um, I definitely have have seen the panic surrounding that. But the bottom line is actually less to do with beaches. What I'm interested in here is once again we're back to shaming as a mode of preventing people or controlling their behavior, which. Um, basically can work for a little while, but never works in the long run. Uh, This pandemic of judgment seems to never just only be um, ballooning. Uh, What do the two of you think? Um, I mean, this is probably not exactly in the shame direction, but this feels very classist to me Um, because I feel like there are a lot of people that live in apartments and don't have access to a pool or don't have access. I mean, I just feel really fortunate that we have access to what we have access to. And I, um, it just feels very classist to me that people are judging other people on the beach. Cause the beach is like the one place you can go, right. That everybody can go to the beach. Um, and I was interested to see this article because I did not know that beaches like that, that they, in my mind, beaches were not safe. Mm. Like I had, I did not have this information. So this is like really interesting. I mean, we've been going some, but I was like, this is, this is helpful to know, but it actually reminds me a little bit of, um, at Christmas this year, there was a particularly big push, um, to give your children experiences in the social circles that I ran in. You should give your kids experiences and not toys. And someone actually said that to you. Is that? Oh that yeah. It oh was a, it's a huge, yeah. It was like a big, like <laughs> don't they should tell me how to celebrate Christmas. Experiences. <laughs> yeah. First of all, don't tell me how to celebrate the birth of our Lord. Do you know how expensive experiences are? Mm. Yeah, they're much more expensive. Like it's ex- it's expensive. Oh, it's really expensive, yeah. actually, to take your kids to Disney World as opposed to like going to Target and spending two hundred dollars on plastic crap, which they're excited to get. Um, so it, this actually, it's interesting. This hits me in that same kind of like classist way where people are like, "No one should go to the beach," and it's like, "Okay, but like you've got a backyard. <laughs> like, what about these people that don't like?" Um, and and that there's. Just this, I mean, I was fascinated. The The writer pointed out these photographs that are almost positioned to look like there are more people closer together when they go up on the media to make us more judgmental of people who are really just doing the best they can. Um, I don't know. Everything feels so angry and divided right now, you guys. It's like even where people are trying to like unwind and relax becomes a space in which we are now we now feel that righteous hatred is perfectly okay. I don't have much to say of this, just to, to acknowledge how good it feels to scold someone else yeah. and to, to be morally righteous and how dangerous it is to be fully convinced of your own rightness. And not just your own rightness, but that what you're doing really is for the benefit of the person who you're shaming and or yeah. scolding. And how that just goes, uh, that goes on and on and on. You know, and one of the, I was looking at readings for one of these Sundays coming up, and one of them is about... Jesus, you know, woe to you Pharisees, you know, who, who do everything right on the outside, but inside are just full of death and how careful I need to be in my own life about telling other people what to do. Yeah. 
you know, ever well, pretty much. It's, it's one of the <laughs> you know? really sad mm-hmm. things about this this moment, which I would say is extends to every to every sphere, the political sphere. Clearly, the conversation about race, the conversation about COVID, the conversation about the you know the, the election. There's so much certainty on on both yeah, sides. No one you knows know. anything. And we really believe as as Christians, it's not that we don't think that there there's truth or that things don't exist or that there's no right or wrong, but we do say that we see through a glass darkly and mm-hmm. that we don't have access to all the facts and that we are not mm-hmm. God. And there's just I find to myself when I when I see um, the vitriol being hurled at um, from at various sides, I thought to myself, the certainty, it strikes me as very young, which is not a nice thing to say about someone's, but I, I mean, I felt like much more certain, you know, when I was 25 than when I was 35, and I feel less certain now. Um, but you wonder that this, uh, and, and I've heard it referred to in the New York Times now as moral clarity, but it, there's a clarity and certainty are not synonymous. And I think uh, clarity does not... Um, uh, does not involve sort of punishing uh, the people w- or who don't disagree with you in the way that we're seeing right now. Now, now this again, we don't necessarily need to think of it politically. Think about it in terms of COVID, which I guess is politically. Uh, Tess Wilkinson Ryan writing in The Atlantic as well. She said one of the difficult things about reopening is the, the new judgments that are... Um, that are open to us. She says, seemingly simple judgments are likely to grow more fraught. What does six feet between people look like? The, liter- the literature suggests that I'm more confident uh, I'm six feet away from a friend than from a stranger, that I'm more likely to blame people not of my race for standing too close, that I overestimate my compliance with public health guidance, but underestimate yours. Humans have difficulty calculating exponents, which is particularly crucial to understanding the speed of disease spread. They struggle to estimate the correct answer to a problem without drifting toward the answer that best serves their own interest. She basically sums up all of the social scientists' findings around COVID and the reopening and the judgments. Then she writes, with more freedom of movement, Americans also have more opportunities to make judgments of others who always seem to be doing it wrong. How can people be sitting in groups chatting at an outdoor bar? Who would take their kid to swim in a public pool? Are you inviting those people inside your house? Now, this is what I love this paragraph from her. She says, even when shamers have the risk calculus right, social distancing shaming is still useless or even harmful to society. Each judgment is a chance not just to get the math wrong, but to let indignation outstrip empathy. Individual citizens, citizens facing a range of permissible options, receiving confusing public health messaging, triaging competing ethical commitments, are not the best targets of our practical moral concern. In the pandemic, this urge is a red herring. It is too easy to focus on people making bad choices rather than on people having bad choices. People should Mm. practice humility regarding the former and voice outrage about the latter. Again, the watchword here being humility. And humility is something that is, um, what did uh, Flannery O'Connor once say? It's not, a, it's not characteristic of any national uh, um, feeling. Uh, it seems to be not something that comes naturally to folks. And yet we so clearly need humility. Maybe the voice of the Christian in the midst of this can simply be the voice of humility, of saying there's limits on our abilities and our agencies. I think that's exactly right. As you were talking, and I was thinking about Rachel Hollis as well, and about this beach thing and reopening, is that there's there's no room 
for nuance in our culture because nuance and humility kind of go together, right? Because clarity is what pushes our buttons. Clarity is what gets us um, angry or reactive or, or feeling morally least. superior. Or I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Certain, certainty, at least. Certainty, that's right. So, and, and, and I think about... Um, you know, as you're talking about humility, I, I just, I know I talk about Paul like ad nauseum, but you know, you guys are best friends. We know. We, I, I just, I, I, I love the guy. I love the guy <laughs> to death. Can't wait to meet him. He won't have any time for me. He'll be, uh, he'll be very abrasive. I know, but I'll love him for it anyway. Um, but I do think he's very clear about Jesus being Lord, but when it comes time to tell people how to act and how to treat one another, especially you read like Romans 12 through 14, there is so much humility and so much nuance, you know, and even that famous passage uh, where he says, um, you know, therefore do not be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. For by the grace given to me, I tell you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but with, you know, a measure of humility that God has given you, that the transformation he's talking about is not moral, ethical certainty or clarity, it's humility. You know, be humble, because this world is not a humble place, and humility is not uh, um, encouraged or or glorified, but that's the way that we are called to act. And then as he lays out how people are to treat one another in the midst of disagreements, it's to do so with humility and gentleness and respect and non-judgment and owe no one anything, owe each other nothing but to love one another, to always lead with love and humility. Um, and so I find it striking, like he, Paul is very clear about what he believes, but when it comes to the way that people interact with one another, he urges them to do so with nuance and humility and respect and non-judgment which is exactly kind of what we need right now, but it, but it's much more difficult, you know? And if you try to be nuanced and humble, you'll be accused of being um, wishy-washy or mealy-mouthed or, or, you know, take a stand, come on, you know, and those or weak. And those are all things Paul was uh, accused of as well, you know, being a, a little bit weak and too, in some ways and too... Um, I don't know. In some ways, I mean, too so conciliatory. Was Jesus, right? So was that's right, so was Jesus exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Like, take a stand, Jesus. Are you are you right. for us or for the Romans? Tell us. Right, right. He's like, no, he's like, here's sorry. the problem. Yeah. I just think like the next, and I'm no doctor. I mean, so don't take this as actual medical advice. But I just think like the next stage of coronavirus is that people's heads are literally going to explode from trying to get everything right and judging other people. Like at some point, your brain just like does like a Kill Bill move just all over the walls because <laughs> I don't know how we are dealing with what we're dealing with. And the internet, like to bring it back to that, like it's just like too much, like it's too much, like shut it down, not mockingbird.com or ember.com, but everything else, just shut it down for a minute. Cause it's, I just, I feel like people are coming apart at the seams and now like we're all given the license to judge each other and it's just like i mean the number of videos that we're taking of each other and i'm not talking about police brutality i'm talking about like regular people filming filming other regular people like it's just like 
are we all do we think we're in the Truman show I don't I'm just like it baffles me mm. it baffles me and so to like walk in the world right now to be in actually to be out in the world and to treat people with a sense that they're doing the best that they can and that God loves them is such a crazy radical thing it's a crazy radical thing to be doing right yeah. now um i mean it's so that's why i'm staying home drinking iced coffee it's imputation i think um it is. because a lot of times people don't have great motives i, I was just thinking no. of one of the video accounts that i've gotten uh, that jacob smith got me hooked on was influencers in the wild which is basically people mm. taking videos of it's other so people doing influencer type things so there's like a there's a woman in yoga pants doing a yoga pose in front of like a, a window that's been smashed in by a riot and it's like it's kind of the <laughs> worst of humanity and yet it's really hard not to sit there and just judge and but kind of have i feel like can i say this like as somebody who has like had some influence like are we the maybe we are actually the worst of humanity like maybe influencers on the internet <laughs> the jury is like only is kind of out i guess <laughs> well the question though of how people actually change how does their behavior actually um alter how do I, what, 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 what does it take for someone who is, uh, you know, hateful and uh, hurtful to ever turn the other cheek or to become a, you know, a, a new version love, of themselves? Dave. And we believe, I, I know, that's what I, I'm, love, shame can work for a little while. Guilt can work yeah. for a little while, but it will not work. And right now the booming voices in our culture are basically saying that, that shame is the only tool we have. Or yeah. and because because that's what a lot of this is coming from. I was thinking about cancel yeah. culture, which has really just gotten so almost absurd right now. And another, yeah, every five seconds, another person is apologizing for something they said thirty years ago or something like that. And you, but what's coming out of it is people's desperation, and they 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 don't feel that they've been able to. They feel shame is the only thing that can work to get the change they want. And so we approach this with empathy, I think. But we also know, I, I I'm convinced more than ever is that. Love is what actually changes other people. Grace is what, and, and it doesn't have to. It doesn't always do it, but it, it's the only thing that really can unstick the uh, the, the stuck thing. And what, uh, so I want to cl close at least this initial section by reading a story that I've discovered through the Michael Lewis's podcast. Now, Michael Lewis is the author of Moneyball and uh, The Big Short and Liar's Poker and all stuff, all these books that basically dads my age are constantly uh, reading on the beach. <laughs> And I'd always avoided it for that, probably that, that very reason. <laughs> and so then my wife, who is never wrong about these things, said, you've got to listen to this episode of his podcast called, his podcast is called Against the Rules. And there's an episode of it called uh, Don't Be Good, Be Great. And I thought, how could that possibly have any Mockingbird relevance? And she said, just listen. It's all about coaches. And it's Lewis uh, talking about his own relationship with his uh, coach, Fitz, his, his, his high school baseball coach. Here we go. My own experience of Coach Fitzgerald began the summer after my freshman year. I was 14, could pass for 12, and was of no obvious athletic use. It was the last night of the Babe Ruth season, the summer league for 13 to 15-year-olds. We were tied for first place with our opponents. The stands were packed. Sean Tuohy was on the mound, and it was the bottom of the last inning, and we were up 2-1. to one. You don't forget these things. There was only one out, and the other team put runners on first and third, but from my comfortable seat on the bench, it was hard to get too worked up about it. 
Then Fitz, Coach Fitz, made his second trip of the inning to the pitcher's mound, and all hell broke loose in the stands. Their fans started hollering at the umps. It was illegal to visit the mound twice in one inning and leave your pitcher in. A well-known New Orleans high school baseball coach who carried a rule book on his person came out from the stands onto the field and stopped the game. A Karen, essentially. A male. A Karen. <laughs> An early Karen. An early Karen. It turns out they ex- they've existed a long time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, the umps, uh, had to listen to. Sean Toohey had to be yanked. Out of one side of his mouth, Fitz tore into the rule book carrying high school coach. And out of the other, he shouted at me to warm up. The ballpark was already in an uproar, but the sight of me, I resembled a scoop of vanilla ice cream with four pickup sticks jutting out of it, sent their side into spasms of delight. I represented an extreme example of our team's general inability to intimidate the opposition. As I walked out to the mound, their hairy, well-muscled players danced jigs in their dugout. Their coaches high-fived. Their fans celebrated and shouted lighthearted insults. The game, as far as they were concerned, was over. I might have been unnerved if I paid them any attention, but I was at that moment fixated on the only deeply frightening thing in the entire ballpark, Coach Fitz. By then I had heard all the Fitz stories. Billy Fitzgerald had been one of the best high school basketball and baseball players ever seen in New Orleans, and he'd gone on to play both sports at Tulane University. He'd been a top draft pick for the Oakland A's. But we never discussed Fitz's accomplishments. We were far more interested in his intensity. We heard that when he was in high school and when his team lost, Fitz refused to board the bus. He walked in his catcher's gear from the ballpark at one end of New Orleans to his home at the other. And now he was standing on the pitcher's mound, erupting with a Vesuvian fury, waiting for me to arrive. When I did, he handed me the ball and said, in effect, put it where the sun don't shine. Then Fitz leaned down, put his hand on my shoulder, and thrusting his face right up at mine, became as calm as the eye of a storm. It was just him and me now. We were in this together. I have no idea where the man's intention ended and his instincts took over, but the effect of his performance was to say, there's no one I'd rather have out here in this life or death situation. And I believed him. As the other team continued to erupt with joy, Fitz glanced at the runner on third base, a reedy fellow with an aspiring mustache, and said, pick him off. Then he walked off and left me alone. If Zeus had landed on the pitcher's mound and issued the command, it would have had no greater effect. The chances of picking a man off third base are never good, and even worse in a close game when everyone's paying attention. But this was Fitz talking, and I can still recall 30 years later the sensation he created in me. I didn't have words for it then, but I do now. I am about to show the world and myself what I can do. At the time, this was a wholly novel thought for me. I'd spent the previous school year racking up C-minuses, picking fights with teachers, and thinking up new ways to waste my time on Earth. Worst of all, I had the most admirable, loving parents on whom I could plausibly blame nothing. What was wrong with me? Now this fantastically persuasive man was insisting, however improbably, that I might be some other kind of person, a hero. The kid with the fuzz on his upper lip bounced crazily off third base, oblivious to the fact that he represented a new solution to an adolescent life crisis. I flipped the ball to the third baseman, and it was in his glove before the kid knew what happened. The kid just flopped around in the dirt as the third baseman applied the tag. I struck out the next guy, and we won the game. Afterward, Coach Fitz called us together for a brief sermon. 
Hot with rage at the coach with the rule book, the ballpark still felt as if it were about to explode. He told us all that there was a quality no one within five miles of this place even knew about called guts, which we all embodied. He threw me the game ball and said he'd never in all his life seen such courage on the pitcher's mound. He'd caught Catfish Hunter and Raleigh Fingers and a lot of other big league players, but who were they? A few weeks later, when school started again, I was told the headmaster wanted to see me in his office. I didn't need directions. My most recent trip a few months earlier had come after I turned on an English teacher and asked, are you always so pleasant or is this just an especially good day for you? But this time the headmaster had good news. Fitz had just spoken to him about me, he said. There might be hope after all. That was so beautiful. I do want to say this never happened in musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a strict meritocracy. It really is. They're never like, we feel like you can do this. You just need to like believe in yourself. They're like, you cannot do this. That's why Isn't musical that ironic was. though? Because you would think like the theater would be exactly the place where that would happen. <laughs> Um, it's, and, but it's actually the sports field. It's actually the sports field's more merciful it than, is, uh, than the it auditorium. Is more I was just sitting here listening, thinking, I wish I'd had someone in my life that would have done that at this age. It's so powerful. Although, Sarah, it's so funny you say that, okay? Because I'm going to tell you, when I was a senior in high school, we did West Side Story. Oh, um, so good. And I, Who are you? Tell I was me the Tony. Details. I was Tony. Oh my god! I know, and I didn't okay. deserve it. I didn't deserve it. Oh, but I, but there was a little bit of a se- but there's a little bit of seniority thing at play, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and there was a guy younger than me named Chris Tate, who was a junior and I was a senior, and he really deserved it more than I did. Um, but I did it, and I did a pretty good job. And afterwards, he said to me, he's he he said to me, he's like RJ, he's like. I'll be honest with you. I didn't think you could do it, but you did a really good job. And Aww. and that meant a lot to me. And he's actually yeah. a Presbyterian. He's a Presbyterian pastor, believe it or not, yeah. Chris Tate. So, and I, 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 that, that, I didn't even think about that until you talked about, until uh, you talked about uh, drama mm. anyway. Yeah. yeah. What I did think about, Dave, was um, Parenthood, which is one of my favorite movies, the the Steve Martin ver- I've never, never actually seen the television show Parenthood. It's right? terrible. Understand. Don't watch it. It's I hear it's ridiculous. far superior. Everyone I loves it. it. I, really loved I, I do not like it at all, and I just want that to go on the record. That's so okay, funny. Keep, I, I, I really like Sarah Condon, but I think she's like, totally wrong about No that. one's like yeah. this. Okay, keep going. Okay, because we, we, we watched Parenthood. We watched Parenthood the night before each of our three children, and I love it. Oh. But he tries, he has a son, Kevin, who's really struggling on every level, like in school, emotionally, academically, everything. And he's trying so hard to be a good dad, so he decides to coach Kevin's Little League baseball team. And he puts his son in at a moment of like tremendous stress, just like this, right? And he says, now go out there, remember, and he, 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 he's pinch hitting in like the bottom of the ninth or sixth or whatever it is. He's like, remember what we hit what we hit and we miss what he missed, but the goal is just to have fun. And his son is like, okay, dad. So he goes out there <laughs> and he strikes out and it's like the worst thing ever. You know what oh. I mean? I know. And then it, it gets, it redeems itself towards the end. Um, but it's always, yeah, it's always a little dangerous, isn't it? It's always a risk. Like Fitz ran a risk and Steve Martin ran a risk. And to sort of try to impute to to, to someone else's is a risk. Like it's a beautiful thing, but it works out sometimes and it doesn't work out sometimes. And 
Um, but that's where, you know, th this is an image, obviously, of like God imputing righteousness to us in Jesus Christ. But the amazing thing about that, it is, it works every time, <laughs> you know, like yeah. God's a hundred percent. But in this lifetime, um, yeah, this is an amazing, an amazing story of earthly imputation that, you know, this Michael, probably, you know, Michael Lewis will never forget and alter well, the course of his life. And I think the wonderful thing about imputation, even on the side of heaven, is that it gives you a soft place to land even when you fail. Because if you say to your kid, like, you're not, this won't go well. And then it doesn't. What else are you gonna do? They yeah. feel like they can't turn to you. But if you're like, you're amazing and this is gonna be great, there's something about speaking love over them that they feel like they can then like they can turn around from the plate. And I've had that experience with my own kid where they turn around from the plate and they have struck out and they're crying, but they feel like they can come to me, right? Because yeah. I didn't say like, you and I both know you've got no shot. You That's know? right. <laughs> like, That's right. No, the, the, what strikes yeah. me is that it's it is a risk. Grace is is risky yeah. business. Um, it is, and uh, you know, there's it's a bad idea. Like it's, it's remember a we, we, it's a bad we talk idea. about uh, Grace being bad a, idea genes. Yeah, it is. It's a bad idea. I, I just wrote a devotion for the new Mockingbird devotional all about bad idea genes, and that was sort of the summation of it. Grace is a bad idea. It's like uh, yeah. it's putting all the chips on the wrong player on the kid that looks That's like right, a, this can't possibly a scoop work. of ice cream yeah. and. Yeah, <laughs> and then um, also it's surprising, you know. It surprises yeah. everyone, including the the person to whom it's directed, and it probably it, it never it maybe even surprised him. You know, there, there's a the, think about great coaches. There's an instinct sort of that kicks in. I think that you hear about, and and throughout the podcast, uh, Lewis is constantly. It, it turns out this man had this effect on a lot of people, and I'm not sure he even <sighs> rem remembered that experience with Michael Lewis, or maybe he recalled it just because Lewis has it has meant so much to Michael Lewis that he wrote for the about it in the New York Times in 2004. He published yeah. a little book all about it in 2008, oh and now gosh. he put it in his hugely successful podcast in 2020. So it's this is what. Um, what I'm trying to say is that uh, the, that just because uh, shame and guilt and condemnation uh, can't fix the problem doesn't mean that um, th that that's all there is. And in fact, mm. it, gr God's grace. What is the Luther's wonderful formulation in the Heidelberg Disputation? The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And to mm. to a certain extent, that's this this man's words created uh, out of sort of nothing, this, uh, this picture or this person. Because Lewis goes on to say that we listen to the man, Coach Fitz, because he had something to tell us and us alone. Not how to play baseball, though he did that better than anyone. Not how to win, though winning was wonderful. Not even how to sacrifice. He was teaching us something far more important. How to cope with the two greatest enemies of a well-lived life, fear and failure. To make the lesson stick, he made sure we encountered enough of both. I never could have explained it at the time what he had done for me, but I felt it in my bones all the same. When I came home one day during my senior year and found the letter saying that somewhat improbably I had been admitted to Princeton University, I ran right back to school to tell Coach Fitz. So this is uh, in a world drowning in uh, 
you know, recrimination. Um, I just want to say that it's uh, that there are the Coates Fitzgeralds out there, and moreover, we believe that God is is like that um, because there's there's plenty of other ways in which this man was just a, a man, and and Lewis had to learn a lot of other lessons that he talks about in there. But what happens is like to to, to unstick him from his yes, very privileged sort of narcissistic, self-involved teenage life took this authority figure seeing something that he couldn't see that in fact probably wasn't even there. So that's grace in a nutshell. Um, (laughs) It really is. um, Thank you both. We'll be back in about three weeks, most likely. Uh, We're juggling a lot of different uh, moving parts here, but we hope to be back to you as soon as we can. So thank you everyone for listening. And until then, as David Ruffin sings by way of Stevie Wonder, heaven help us all. Bye. Bye, friends. Bye, Dave. Bye, Sarah. Heaven help the child who never had a home. Heaven help the girl who walks the streets alone. Heaven help the roses if the bombs begin to fall. Heaven help us all mm-hmm. Take heed to me, listen Heaven help the black man If he struggles one more day Heaven help the white man If he turns his back away Heaven help the man Who kicks the man Who has to crawl mm-hmm. Heaven help us all Heaven help us Heaven help the man who gave that boy gun. Heaven help the people with their backs against the wall. Heaven, heaven help us all. Mm-hmm. Help me sing the song, children. In a troubled world, I pray the Lord to keep Keep hatred from the mighty and the mighty from the small
Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Oh